This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Ezra. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Ezra chapter 4. As you make your way to the fourth chapter of Ezra, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that this historical record provides us with the details of the days that follow the decree of King Cyrus, by which the Israelites were finally set free from their Babylonian captivity. And while it's true that those who returned to the land of promise had permission to rebuild the temple of God there in Jerusalem, well, it's also true that they soon found themselves at odds with the people who were living there in the land. And as we make our way through this incredible chapter, we're going to consider how the Israelites dealt with this conflict, which was being caused by those who were trying to disrupt their devotion to God. And knowing that we all experience conflict with you know, those who want to disrupt our devotion with the Lord, well, we're going to take some time tonight to consider how Christians ought to respond to those who are trying to stop us from serving our Savior. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's pick up our study of the events that we find here in the book of Ezra. If you would look with me there at Ezra chapter 4, I want to begin reading there at verse 1. Here Ezra writes, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here? But Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Ezra describing the days when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin they approached those who were in leadership and, and, and the, the leaders there who had returned from the Babylonian captivity found themselves face-to-face with these uh, you know, people who were dwelling there in the land. And, and those people came and extended an offer to help with the construction of the temple. Now, uh, this probably sounded like a real generous gesture of genuine kindness, but you know, the fact is that these people were actually just attempting to control the people of God. They didn't really want to help them build the temple. No, instead, they wanted to spy. They wanted to control. They wanted to have their way there in Jerusalem. To prove my point, I would just encourage you to back up one chapter. I want to consider a statement that Ezra made back in chapter 3. If you would look with me there at Ezra 3, verse 3, there we learn that fear had come upon them, that is the Israelites, because of the people of those countries they set the altar on its basis, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, but the morning, uh, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. So, so here we see that <clears throat> the people who had returned to the land were actually living in fear. And the reason why is because those who were occupying the land of their inheritance, they were already causing conflict with those who were seeking to reclaim the property that rightly belonged to them. That being the case, we shouldn't be surprised here to see that Ezra actually refers to these people as adversaries here in chapter 4. Now, for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word adversary is found there in chapter 4, verse 1. It's translated from a Hebrew word which was used of those who are opponents or enemies. Uh, the same Hebrew word is also used of those who cause anguish and affliction. Now, with this definition in mind, we can see here that the men who were offering to help with the construction of the temple 
Well, they had already proven themselves to be adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. Therefore, it only stands to reason that their offer to help was actually just their way of getting in close and taking control over this construction project. Thankfully, the leaders of Israel were able to see past the friendly facade. They saw past this offer to help, and and it's for this reason that they just turned around and told these adversaries to go pound sand. As we consider the way that the adversaries of Israel were using kindness as a means of manipulation and control, we would all do well to consider the warning that Paul presented to the Christians at the church in Corinth. And with this as the focus, hold your place here in the book of Ezra. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. As you make your way to the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to remind you that uh, the devil is also known as our adversary. When, when we get to the New Testament, we see the devil being called the adversary. And you better believe that our adversary has no problem using smiling, friendly ministers to lead people astray. We, we tend to, to think about the devil and his demons as, you know, scary, uh, scary entities that, you know, when they show up, it's all frightening, you know. And, and yet, in reality, uh, we know that Satan and his demons have no problem masquerading as ministers of righteousness. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look with me there, beginning at verse 12. Here Paul declares, What I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Christian, listen, the servants of Satan have no problem hiding behind a facade of faith. Just turn on TBN, and I'm sure you'll see many examples of this. It's with big toothy grins and gentle words that they lead people astray. With that being the case, Paul was determined to protect the people of God from those demonic deceivers by exposing those who were actually false prophets and deceitful workers. Yeah, they were coming along and, and, and there were these you know, false teachers who were claiming to be apostles of Christ when in fact they weren't. And so Paul was on guard And he was protecting the church from these deceivers. It's for this reason that I'm also careful when it comes to the teachers that I personally endorse and promote. You see, I know that there is an adversary, and I know that our adversary is sending false teachers with friendly faces into every church. And you better believe that this includes pastors who pretend to be the servants of our Savior. And, and, and so, you know, rather than helping us to follow in the footsteps of faith, you know, they're, they're actually leading people astray with false doctrines. And yes, this is even happening in the Calvary Chapel movement as well. I remember a day when I could just tell someone, hey, whatever city you go into, go find the Calvary Chapel. You're sure to get a good Bible study. And now here we are, 2022, and I'm not so sure about that anymore. It's not as easy, even in the Calvary Chapel movement, to just give a blanket endorsement of every pastor because tares are being sown among the wheat by our enemy. 
Remember the warning that Paul presented in Acts chapter 20. It's in verse 29 where he informs us that savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. That's right, there's going to be tares among the wheat that will rise up here within the church. And while they pretend to be ministers of righteousness, their goal is just to control people as they lead them astray. It's for this reason that every good pastor will do everything they can to guard the flock that God has entrusted to their care. This is the flock that God has entrusted to my care, and I feel that responsibility to provide the same kind of protection that Paul was providing for the fellowships that he was planting back in the first century. With this as my calling, you should know that there are times when the Lord will provide leaders like Zerubbabel, a political leader, or Yeshua, the religious leader of Israel at that point in time. The Lord provides these leaders with the discernment that they need to spot the deceivers who are actually servants of Satan. And while it might seem as if Zerubbabel and Jeshua uh, were being unloving by sending these people away, you know, there would be many who would come along and think, oh, that's, that's just mean. Why aren't they more loving leaders? But listen, the, the Lord gave them that measure of discernment that they needed to send away those friendly visitors. And, and with that, it's important for us to understand that, that the Lord is able and, and even you know, uh, without problem provides his leaders with the discernment that they need for the leadership position that they hold. The Lord provides discernment for his leaders to protect the people of God from the servants of Satan. With this as the focus, I'd like you to turn back to Ezra chapter 4. Here we discovered that the decision of Zerubbabel and Jeshua uh, it was a completely correct decision. As a matter of fact, look with me there beginning at verse 4. Here we learn that the people of the land tried to, to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now here in these verses, we find the adversaries of Israel doing everything that they could. They were doing everything they could to discourage the people of God and to trouble the people of God and to frustrate the people of God. Just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the word discourage, which is found there in verse 4, was translated from a Hebrew word which was used of those who attempt to destroy the courage of another through intimidation or oppression. They were discouraging them or trying to destroy their courage. And not only did the enemies of Israel discourage them, but they also troubled them as as they were trying to get their work done. And uh, just to be clear, that word trouble is translated from a Hebrew word, which was used of those who attempt to terrorize others so that their minds are just filled with fear. You know, when your mind is filled with fear, it's hard to think clearly. And that's exactly what they were trying to do. They were troubling their minds, filling their minds with fear, in an attempt to try to stop them from quickly rebuilding the temple. And while it's true that the adversaries discouraged them and troubled the people of God, they also hired counselors against them in order to frustrate their goals. In other words, they bribed the advisors of the, uh, of the king. You know, the, the king had his advisors, and so these guys were coming along and bribing those advisors to go and advise the king against the people of God. They were looking for legal ways to stop that construction project. Now, as we consider the ways in which uh, you know, these adversaries of Israel attempted to stop them from 
rebuilding the temple, well, there should be no doubt in our minds that their generous offer to help with all the heavy lifting was nothing more than a deceptive measure that would have given them greater access and control over those who were working on this building project. So yeah, they came along with a big smiley face and said, we'd like to help. When in reality, what was in their heart was, we want to stop you. We want to get in your way. We want to trouble you and discourage you and frustrate you. But that being the case, we can say with all certainty that Zerubbabel and Yeshua were right when they decided to deny the seemingly friendly offer for help. Well, I have no doubt that there were some Israelites who were quick to question this decision because it probably seemed harsh. It probably seemed like here's some friendly people that just want to help and, and our leaders just sent them packing. Well, after all is said and done, we know now that Zerubbabel and Yeshua were, were able to see past the friendly facade because rather than leaning on their own understanding and rather than leaning on their feelings, rather than being led by their gut, they received divine discernment from our omniscient God. Christian, listen, the Lord already knew what was in the hearts of those adversaries. The Lord already knew that those men were only trying to frustrate the people from their godly purpose. And not only that, but the Lord also knew the plans of those friendly phonies. And it's for this reason that the Lord ended up leading Zerubbabel and Jeshua to deny them access to Temple Mount and to deny them their request to be a part of the construction project. Listen, in similar fashion, there are times when the Lord gives a greater level of divine discernment to the pastors and to the leaders that he has raised up here in the church age. As a matter of fact, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where we learn about the spiritual gift that Paul calls the discerning of spirits. That's one of the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit has provided to some Christians. We've all received at least one spiritual gift. But when it comes to higher levels of leadership in the church, you know, the Lord distributes even more gifts just by necessity. And every pastor he calls, he gifts with a spiritual discernment. In order to grasp the importance of this spiritual gift of discernment, uh, let's consider how Paul empowered us to, uh, actually empowered uh, Paul to use uh, this gift in the uh, city of Philippi. If you would hold your place here in the book of Ezra, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. You see it's here in the 16th chapter of Acts where we find a Philippian fortune teller, and she's actually endorsing the ministry of Paul and Silas. She's endorsing their ministry. She's actually, you know, giving them a five-star rating, you know, on, on their social media app. But rather than accepting her endorsement, Paul was given the discernment that he needed to recognize how her endorsement might damage their Christian witness. With this in mind, look with me there at Acts chapter 16. I want to begin reading at verse 16. Here Luke tells us that it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. 
And here in these verses, we learn about this day when this, when this Philippian fortune teller who was possessed with this spirit of divination, she came out and publicly endorsed the ministry and the message of Paul. And as we consider the statement that she keeps crying out, she says, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim the, us to, uh, the way of salvation. That's a true statement. Everything she said was correct. And yet Paul rebukes her. Though her public proclamation promoting Paul and, and his, his traveling buddies was correct, Paul realized that the enemy was actually attempting to trick the people into believing that the Christian faith, well, it's kind of coincides with, you know, this gal who engages in divination. You know, the, the enemy was trying to use her to basically level the playing field between the faith of Paul and the faith of this girl. She, she, she's actually being used by the enemy to promote what we call universalism. The belief that, you know, all religions are equally valid. So if Paul would have allowed this lady to continue promoting his ministry, then many there in Philippi would have been led to believe that, well, whether we go with the definition girl or the, or, or the Christian guy, yeah, either way, whatever. Rather than allowing this implication of universalism to remain unchallenged, you know, the Lord gave Paul the spiritual discernment that he needed, and as a result, the Lord then led Paul to rebuke that spirit of divination and cast the demon out so that the people there in Philippi might realize that the Christian faith is the only way of salvation and that the power that Paul had from the true and living God was way greater than any power that this woman of divination had. Now take this story and fast forward nearly 2,000 years and now we find many self-identified pastors who seemingly don't have a problem working together with those who are being led by evil spirits. Rather than following in the footsteps of Paul, who had the discernment to rebuke those who were trying to muddy the water for the, for the church, so many pastors in the, in the church today are just fine with working together with other religious systems. I've been invited personally to prayer groups that, you know, yeah, there's Christians there, there's oneness Pentecostal people there, there's, there's Mormons there, there's Catholics there. And they all pray together. And I'm like, who, who are you praying to? When you examine the theology and all the different beliefs about God, clearly this group is not praying to the same God. And yet there's Protestant pastors who go to these groups and just pray along as if, you know, they're all on the same page. Clearly, these pastors don't have the spiritual gift of discernment, which would help them to discern the fact that they're in a prayer group with unbelievers. There are pastors, thankfully, who do have the ability to discern the spirits because of the gifting of the Holy Spirit, and yet they don't have the courage to expose the deceptive measures of the devil. And, and I've talked to these pastors. I've talked to many pastors who know that there's something wrong with this, know that they shouldn't be a part of this, but don't have the courage to actually take a stand for it. One reason why is because they, they're afraid that they might lose nominal Christians from their congregation. 
you know, they've worked themselves into this major budget that they have to come up with the money for every week. And so they can't be just chasing people off, you know, from their church with a little bit of truth. And so they, you know, they, they, they end up just kind of sitting on their hands and taking that gift of discernment and, and, and ignoring it so that they can please the audience and tickle their ears. That being the case, we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that many churches are filled with false teachers who are, are tickling the ears of those who love to hear the lovely lies of Lucifer. And with that being the case, you're not going to assure you that, that you know, I, don't, I, I not only ask the Lord for the discernment that I need, because I'll be the first to tell you, I'm an idiot. You know, I, I need God. I need his gift of discernment. But not just the uh, gift of discernment, because it's, it's one thing to discern something is wrong. It's another thing to actually take a stand and be a courageous Christian who opposes what's wrong. And so I personally pray as a pastor, not only for the gift of discernment, but also that he would provide me with the courage to actually take a stand and fight for the truth. Because listen, in my flesh, I'd much rather just say, whatever, who cares? I'm not going to fight this fight. Because you know how much easier that is? So much easier. So much easier to just let the enemy fill the church up with tears and say whatever they want. And yep. I could just, you know, blow off the rest of the day and go about my business and then, you know. Yeah, that's a whole lot easier. But the Lord has put it on my heart to not only walk in his discernment so that I can be discerning of the people that I, you know, promote and and encourage, but also the courage to take a stand and fight when that time comes. Yeah, even when the fight results in the rejection or the religious persecution of those who want to discourage us and trouble us and frustrate us. With all this in mind, I want to continue to consider how the adversaries of Israel tried to frustrate the people of faith during the days of Ezra. And so if you would turn with me back to Ezra chapter 4, let's pick up our study beginning there at verse 6. There Ezra writes, In the reign of Ahasuerus... In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, also Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabal, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. And here in these verses, we find the enemies of Israel, they're preparing to send the strongly worded letter to the king of Persia. And we should notice again there in verse 6 that they actually waited until the day when King Darius was replaced by Ahasuerus. And for those of you who are concerned about proper pronunciation, well, it's actually pronounced Akashvarosh. Okay, so I got challenged recently about not being able to pronounce names, and it's just like, well, that's why. Akashvarosh is the guy that they wrote to, if that makes anybody happy here. Don't slap me. <laughs> but what's even more important than that is, listen, you know, th- this is actually uh, the name for King Artaxerxes, who is also known as Xerxes I. What this means is this, that the enemies of Israel sent this letter to King Xerxes in the hopes that Xerxes wasn't really remembering too much about 
the, uh, the, 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 the decree of King Cyrus, which was so many years ago. And, and so hopefully this guy will just overlook the previous decrees of King Cyrus, which were supported by King Darius. And, and, and hopefully, you know, the, the, this king, this new king would come along and grant them the right to take a stand against Israel and stop them from rebuilding the temple. And that's, that's exactly what happened. King Xerxes was apparently unaware of the decree. And so he gave them what they asked for. Let's consider how the enemies of Israel tried to manipulate the mind of King Artaxerxes. If you would look with me there, uh, beginning at verse 8, here we learn that Reum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. And remember, this is all in Aramaic, so I'm not going to pronounce a single word correctly. So it says, from Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives of the Dinaites and the Afar-Sassachites, the Tarpalites, the people of Persia and Erech and Babylon and Shushan, the Dahavites and the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble, oh, snapper, <laughs> took captive. <laughs> I'm just reading what it says. He's like, ah, oh, snapper. The noble ah, oh, snapper, took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river and so forth. This is a copy of the letter that they sent him to King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river and so forth. Let it be known, how, that's such lazy writing. Beyond the river and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Let it now be known to the the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we receive support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king... Uh, that search uh, may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, uh, for which cause this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river, speaking of the river Euphrates. Now here in these verses, we find the enemies of Israel, they're attempting to punish the people of God by manipulating the mind of King Artaxerxes. They're, they're attempting to, to manipulate his mind so that then he turns around and gives them the authority to come in and legally punish them and prosecute them and persecute them. And we must not fail to notice that, that they went uh, you know, about this by focusing the king's attention on, on just the times when the kings of Israel refused to submit to some foreign king. Now, now, what kingdom is not guilty of that? Is there one single kingdom on the planet that at some point in time resisted the invasion of a foreign king? Of course. And yet that's their argument is, well, you can go back in, into the history of Israel and you can see where there were times when they took a stand against foreign invasions. Yeah? Oh, so, so then they're bad people, huh? Guess we're all bad people then. You know, this really gets into to the arguments of, of racism. Well, well, these people used to own those people, and those people used to own these people. And listen, everyone was a slave or owner at some point in time, and everyone, every nationality has been a slave at some point in time. It's just the history of the world. 
So to come along and make these arguments that, well, if you go look at the history of all this, you know, you'll see that these people were once really violent people. All of our ancestors were violent people at some point in time. Because that's just the way the world was at, at some point in time. So let's be careful. And when we start cherry picking historic, you know, accounts and saying, well, these people must be worse than those people because, look, we're all sinners. Uh, you know, our lineage goes back to sinners who were born by sinners who, who, who were birthed by sinners. God help us. We desperately need help in our hearts today. So that's what these guys are doing, though. They're trying to say, well, these people are worse than those people. We're, so, we're good people because we're receiving you know, welfare from you. And, and because we want that welfare coming to us, then you need to tell them to stop being bad people so that they can send you the money that now you're sending to us. And, and King Artaxerxes, this, this new king, is just kind of like, oh, let me check the records real quick. Oh, yeah, they were bad people back then. So, okay, that's what happens. The adversaries of God's people, uh, you know, were using specific aspects of Israel's history as a way to convince the king of Persia that they couldn't be trusted. And listen, this is exactly the same strategy that our adversary uses against us, Christian. As a matter of fact, it's in Revelation chapter 12. There we learn that the devil is the accuser of believers. And it's in the same passage where we learn that Satan is the one who is constantly accusing us before God day and night. You might not have known that. But the devil is constantly accusing us before God. And let's be perfectly honest. He doesn't have to make anything up, does he? He doesn't have to make up any lies about us. We give him all the ammunition that he needs. That being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that the king of kings, he ain't listening. He's not listening because, listen, he's already forgiven the believer. When Satan brings his accusations before God, and that accusation is about a born-again believer, God goes and checks the record and sees, oh, that's, that's been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's in the 103rd Psalm where King David confirms this by declaring as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How incredible is that? Now, how far is the east from the west? And just imagine that as far east as you can go is as far west you can go, and that's how far God has removed our transgressions from us. The devil is constantly accusing us before the Lord. But the born-again believer has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who already received the punishment that we deserve for every single sin. Praise the Lord. Unfortunately for the Israelites who were rebuilding the temple, you know, King Artaxerxes, uh, you know, wasn't as all-knowing as our God, right? Our king is all-knowing, and he knows the end from the beginning, but Artaxerxes was fooled by the adversary of Israel. As a matter of fact, let's consider his response, which is found here in Ezra chapter 4. Look with me there, beginning at verse 17. Here we learn that the king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, to Shimshai, the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river, peace, and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me, and I gave the command, and search has been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings, and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease 
that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to hurt to the hurt of the kings? Uh, now here in these verses we find King Artaxerxes giving authority to the adversaries there in Israel. And, and in this way they were enabling them to, them to go and put an end to the reconstruction of the temple. In this way Xerxes was accidentally contradicting the previous commands of both Cyrus and Darius. Now, the reason I say accidentally here, he was accidentally doing this, I believe it was an accident, and it's based on the fact that King Artaxerxes was making decisions from limited information. Remember, the adversaries of Israel said, hey, go check the records for this specific information, and so that's what they looked for. What they failed to go and look for were the decrees given by Cyrus, and then, uh, then after the fact, uh, supported by Darius, uh, they didn't look at those decrees. And so he was failing to recall uh, the decrees of both Cyrus and Darius, which actually commanded the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. We're going to see in our next two studies that this mistake made by Artaxerxes was then quickly corrected. Once he was challenged to go look at the information about those previous decrees, that's when he realized that he had actually uh, uh, issued a command which was contrary to Darius and uh, before him Cyrus. And so he corrects this mistake and, and you know, spoiler alert, but uh, that's what we're going to see in the next two weeks. But, uh, but now, you know, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I just want to take a moment to point out that our adversary can't attack us unless he receives permission from God. And, and that's what we see in this story is we see these adversaries, they're going to King Artaxerxes asking for the permission to then turn around and attack the children of Israel. And that's exactly what the enemy has to do. Our adversary cannot attack us unless he receives permission from God. Case in point, Satan went and sought permission from God before he attacked Job. And God gave him the parameters. and said, you can do this, but you can't do that. Not only that, but Jesus also informed Peter that Satan had come asking permission to sift him as wheat. How'd you like that information from Jesus? Hey, you know what? Satan's been asking about you. Yeah, Satan asked God for permission to sift Peter like wheat. And and Jesus then turned around and told Simon Peter that he was praying for him so that he might endure that trial. I should also remind you that the Lord... Uh, had allowed a messenger of Satan to strike Paul's body with sickness. And the Lord informed us that God the Father uh, was the one who gave Pontius Pilate the authority to to condemn Christ Jesus to, to the death of the cross. And Jesus told him straight up, you wouldn't have no authority over me unless it had been given to you by God. With these examples in mind, there should be no doubt in our minds that, that every attack of our adversary has been lovingly allowed according to the authority of our almighty God. The devil and his demons and the enemies of of the Lord cannot come against us apart from the permission of the Lord. And so you might be wondering, why does he give so much permission? Why is God giving the enemy so much permission? Because I seem like I'm getting attacked every other day. 
Well, in order to understand why the, allow, uh, the, the Lord allows the adversary to attack, I encourage you to remember the lesson that James presented in James chapter 1. There he declares, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Christian, do you find yourself often attacked by the enemy? Because if so, the reason why is because you're so imperfect. And this is how God perfects us. We don't like it. We don't like the heat getting turned up. We don't like the dross being scraped off. And yet the Lord knows it's for our good and for his glory. The process by which we're being perfected oftentimes includes times of adversity. That's why when we go through tough seasons, when we go through trials, if we approach it correctly, that's the time when we grow the most. Spiritual maturity doesn't happen when we sit around and everything just works out well. Spiritual maturity comes along when we're put to the test and when we learn to seek the Lord and walk in his strength. So yeah, there's going to be times when the Lord allows our adversary to attack us and and not so that we might be harmed, but that we might learn how to walk in the strength of our Savior as he perfects us through every infirmity, every reproach, every need, or uh, every persecution, and every distress. With this as our focus, I want to consider how the Israelites handled this tough trial. And so if you would look with me there in the final verses of this chapter, beginning at verse 23, here Ezra writes, Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehom, Shimshai the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we find the armies of of the adversary now surrounding the city of Jerusalem. And by the decree of King Artaxerxes, the Israelites were ordered to cease and desist from the construction project. And and with that being the case, you know, I have no doubt that the people of God were, were scratching their heads and wondering why in the world was the Lord allowing their adversaries to stop them from accomplishing their calling? Why was he enabling the enemy to, to exercise this level of authority over them? Well, with these questions in mind, I should remind you that there are times when the Lord allows our adversaries to rise up against us, and, and the reason why is because you know, this, uh, this actually provides the people of God with the opportunity to be perfected. At the same time, though, it's also important for us to realize that there are times when we find ourselves surrounded by the enemy because we placed ourselves in the middle of their camp. There are times when we find ourselves receiving the... the, the the attack of the enemy, because we invited the adversary into our house. Remember, all of these foreigners who were surrounding Jerusalem on this day, they were dwelling in the land of promise because the children of Israel had been carried away into captivity. That being the case, they were surrounded by the servants of Satan because their fathers had failed to keep their covenant with the Lord and as a result ended up in Babylon. And as they were in Babylon, well, the king of Assyria repopulated the, uh, the northern area of Israel with, with these different people. Had 
Had the people of God been walking with the Lord and keeping their covenant with him, they would have remained in the land and these adversaries would have never moved in. So in effect, they invited the enemy to come and live in their land. And when they returned, this was the rotten fruit of their decisions. In similar fashion, listen, there are times when we find ourselves surrounded by the enemy on every side. And the reason why is because we invited the enemy into our lives. Maybe it's through what we watch or listen to or the people that we hang out with or or what we do on the weekends or whatever the case is, but we invited the enemy. And if this sounds like your situation, then I encourage you to consider the advice that the Apostle Peter presented in the fifth chapter of his first epistle. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where Peter declares, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Rather than inviting the enemy into our lives with licentious living, Peter here is challenging us to stay sober. Stay sober so that we can be those vigilant believers who are resisting the temptations of the enemy. Trust me when I tell you that our adversary is always looking for that opportunity to attack a weak believer. How do I know that? Well, because that's how the lion hunts. The, the lion is looking for the straggler, the, 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 the weak gazelle. The lion doesn't chase down the strongest one. No, they, they, they chase down the, the one on the fringe of the herd, the one who can't keep up with the flock. And with that being the case, we would do well to to recognize the the value of belonging to a Christian community and being accountable with one another and, and staying plugged in. Our adversary is always looking for the opportunity to attack the weakest believer, the one living on the fringe, the one not plugged in. And with that being the case, Peter encourages us to to resist the devil, to stand steadfast in the faith so that we can learn how to walk in the spiritual strength of our Savior. And listen, as we walk soberly in the spiritual strength of our Savior, I'm here to tell you that the Lord Jesus will enable us and empower us so that we can enjoy the victory that he already secured for us on the day he overcame every adversary there on that old rugged cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you.